Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. There's this interesting thing about companies and brands. Uh, they, they can sometimes stir this strong, visceral, emotional response in people. So if I say McDonald's and Apple or Tesla or Starbucks or Nike or Timmy's, uh, some of you may feel totally indifferent, but some of you may you know, feel strong emotional connection, either positively or negatively. It's a, it's a subjective thing. Like uh, you, you could have had a bad experience there. You could think their logo is ugly. Uh, their commercials are annoying and it's kind of forever turned you off. For instance, um, you know where I won't be getting my insurance? Liberty, 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 liberty. I, uh, they've, that they've lost the sale with that. Uh, you know where I won't be getting my mattress? Sleep country, Canada. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry. They, uh, I don't need that song in my head all day. I, right now, um, when I hear the, the name Facebook, uh, I have ill feelings towards them. And the irony isn't lost to me that right now some of you are watching on Facebook and that we post every day uh, as an act. And, uh, and it's been helpful for us to communicate and for me to stay in touch with my extended family and to stay in touch with many of you. But truth be known, I think we'd be better off as a planet without Facebook, partly because I'm getting the impression that they're actually bad for society. Partly it's because I get the impression they have chosen profits over responsibility. Partly because the guy who we'll put up on the screen, who we all think of when we think of Facebook, is, uh, you know, is someone who looks like he's been engineered in a robot factory and, um, and maybe left out that empathy part of his programming. And by the way, rebranding, changing your name to Meta doesn't solve the problem either. Um, this might be a good time to, to announce that uh, NAC is going to be uh, rebranding as well very soon. So <laughs> is my head really that big in real life? All right, let's get that picture off there for now. Um, this, this uh, is often uh, associated with a person or people, and it can give us a, a visceral reaction. Like, it's why I probably am not going to have anything to do with Papa John's or My Pillow or Huawei or um, We, was it We Charity? I don't think those brands will ever recover for me personally. Some brands do recover. I don't know if anybody is old enough like me to remember when Hyundai was a laughing stock. Like the Hyundai Pony, do you remember that? Was anything worse? Maybe the Ford Pinto, I don't know. But they have, they have rebuilt 
kind of respectability over the last 20 years as, a, as an affordable, you know, reliable car. And, and I've actually stuck with them for, for those 20 years. And which, which brings me to the brand, if you'll pardon the crassness of that word, the brand of Christianity. I think this is a challenge because there is a lot of walking, talking advertisements out there who are turning people off and turning people away. We, you and I, are either the best endorsement for Christianity or, or the biggest obstacles to it. That's hard, that's hard to get your head around. I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians, but um, maybe they're even outspoken about their faith, but they come across as legalistic and judgmental and hypocritical and intolerant, or, or for some people, all of the above. And we're in this series called Losing My Religion. And it's about those who are drifting away from Christianity or those who perhaps never had a faith to begin with. And, and this, is, this is one of the biggies, maybe the biggest for those who are feeling done with their faith. Humans have this incredible capacity to hurt each other. And unfortunately, the capacity to hurt one another doesn't just automatically evaporate the moment one becomes a Christian. Few things have hurt the cause of Christianity more than the pain inflicted by Christians on other Christians. Ask most Christians why they don't go to church anymore. And they'll tell you the number one most common reason for leaving the church is not Jesus other people. And so while some inflicted pain is, is, is um, inadvertent, tragically, sometimes that pain against us has been willful and repetitive. We might never know the exact reason why Christians hurt each other, but, but here's what I do know. That kind of pain is deep, and some never recover from it. Recently, when young non-Christians were asked about the first thing that came to mind when they thought of Christianity. You know what they said? 91% said the first thing that comes to mind when they think of Christians is that Christians are anti-LGBTQ. In fact, anti a lot of things. Um, The next two perceptions are that Christians are judgmental, 87%, and hypocritical, 85%. Quite a quite a first impressions we're giving. So let's just take an honest look at, at, at those perceptions of Christians. And, and maybe the way to sum up that characterization that Christians are against a lot of things. By the way, just think about that, that we would be known by what we're against instead of what we are for and who we are for. The word that comes to mind, I think, is this word legalism. And legalism is putting a bunch of do's and don'ts onto people to follow in the name of God that God did not put on people, okay? It's a, re- it's a religion of added rules and regulations and standards and stipulations and codes of conduct contrived by someone to determine who is and who is not in the club, okay? Okay? the spiritually approved club. 
It's being asked, if not forced, to, to measure up in ways that can be binding and brutal, and it feels about a million miles away from anything authentic and loving and life-changing, anything freeing. This is actually what caused the, the most tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, known as the teachers of the law or Pharisees. They were very religious and were considered the, the holiest people of the day. And they, uh, they took scripture not so much as a love letter from God, but kind of this, this rule book, a checklist. And they calculated that contained um, in the Old Testament, what, uh, you know, uh, what the, was their Bible of the day, 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And they vowed to obey every one of them. So let's see if this collapses this week. All right. So uh, we have the, the Old Testament. And within that, they calculated, how many was there? There's 200 and, uh, what did I say? 248 uh, commands and 365, one for every day, prohibitions. And the funny thing about, about this was that as they looked at, at this through their legalistic lens, they wanted to make sure that they didn't break even one of those commands or prohibitions. So here's what they did. They made rules about the rules, and they made laws about the laws. And in the end, they came up with more than 1,500 additions uh, to help them keep the 248 commands and the 365 prohibitions. And, and all of that um, was, was an oral tradition that was later gathered together in, in what's called the, the Mishnah. So you've got these 1,500 uh, new rules, and this is in the, the Mishnah. But that wasn't enough. This is getting comical. Even, uh, even that wasn't enough. So they made more rules around the rules, and they, they made more prohibitions around the prohibitions, and they created another circle called the Gemara. And together, the, the Mishnah and the Gemara were sort of put together and called the, the Talmud. You may have heard that before. So rules upon rules, prohibitions upon prohibitions is like sort of in this Russian nesting doll kind of uh, thing and so how how did rules about rules about rules play out for people like the Pharisees? Well, in a lot of ways, um, like I mentioned last week, you know, for instance, to avoid saying the Lord's name in vain, they refused to say God's name at all. 
even in worship or in prayer, to avoid committing adultery. Uh, They would lower their heads whenever a woman passed by, just so that they wouldn't even look at her because it might, you know, cause them to lust. And this is why that the most holy of the Pharisees were called the bleeding Pharisees. Not the bleeding Pharisees for you Monty Python fans out there. It was the bleeding Pharisees because they kept, when they were lowering their heads, they kept walking into walls and, and hitting their head. No kidding. Like these were the holiest people. You could tell because they had bandages all over their head. To properly follow the command to rest on the Sabbath, for instance, they decided they need to figure out how many steps you could take before it became work. And for whatever reason, they calculated that you couldn't take anything more beyond 50 steps on the Sabbath. That violated the law. Or you could eat, but not cook. You could bandage a wound, but not apply medicine. Uh, you couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair. And if you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out. And plucking out that gray hair would be considered work. And Jesus had a few things to say about this. And he was pretty direct. He said, and, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. This was more of a slam than you may, may realize. Jesus uses the word woe. This was a special word. This was a prophet's word. Okay, when a prophet uttered a word from God that, that was positive, they began the word blessed or blessed, right? That's we hear that so much in the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful and so on. But when judgment was being uttered on a people, prophet would begin with woe. Woe to you. So we know how Jesus felt about legalism. He, he woed it. <laughs> he, he gave it the ultimate condemnation. And what was it about legalism that Jesus hated? Um, not only did it cripple people's spiritual life, it actually made a mockery of it. Because if it's all about legalism, then you can play the law like a tax lawyer, right? Chasing loopholes and technicalities, focusing on the letter of the law, but never the spirit. No offense to tax lawyers in the crowd, by the way. But it was the spirit that Jesus was after. It was the heart that he wanted. Following Jesus is not about what you do. It is about who you are. So today, if you hate legalism, uh, I'm happy to tell you This doesn't mean you have to be turned off from Christianity because Jesus did too. If you want to join the I Hate Legalism Club, come on in because I'm a member and Jesus is our president. And in fact, here's what he said. This is from the message translation. I really like how Peterson interprets this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So are there legalistic people? Yes. 
What is legalism? What comes with Jesus? Or what is denounced by Jesus? Denounced. So, so when you see it, um, you know you're not actually seeing authentic Christianity. Don't let it be an impediment to authentic Christian faith. What about judgmentalism? Yeah, we all know a certain judgmental type, people who act pridefully, act morally superior, find fault with everybody else. Judgmental people, they lack compassion and, and lack grace towards other people's screw-ups. You know, the judgmental seem more interested in condemning people than helping people. If you've encountered this, you have every right to be repulsed by it. It's a, it's a terrible thing to experience. What's more tragic is to find that spirit among those who claim to be followers of Jesus. We're supposed to be known as, the, as a grace people. We're supposed to be the people that don't see others just for their mistakes and failures and flaws. People who are quick to forgive and restore. So it can be incredibly confusing to discover that sometimes grace is nowhere to be found among the people of Jesus. And why does that happen? I, I, it's simple, I guess. Some people are not being very Jesus-y. Did I just coin a phrase? I think I did. Because Jesus went out of his way to tell those who followed him, stop being so judgy. Okay, you may remember we covered this extensively in our Sermon on the Mount series. You're, you're making a big deal about the speck of sawdust in someone's eye, and meanwhile you have this two-by-four sticking out of your own? Jesus said, do not judge, period. That's God's job, not ours. Now, to be fair, um, sometimes when people say, don't judge me, it's code for, you know, don't you dare say anything I do is wrong or bad in any way. That's not what being judgmental is about. There are times where we're actually called to exercise gracious, wise judgment, okay? Where we're called to call out foolishness and sin. Judgmentalism, though, is about a, a spirit, a practice of personal condemnation. The, the judgmental person Jesus is talking about is someone who's a fault finder, uh, uh, who is negative and destructive towards other people. So when you encounter judgmentalism, remember, it's not reflective of Jesus' life or who he calls us to be and how to live. Jesus is truth, yes, but always, always with grace. Authentic Christian community is nothing but a colossal collection of screw-ups. Welcome to church, everybody. Collectively, we all are fellow strugglers in this. We've got sins of pride and greed and pornography and self-righteousness and lying and stealing and adultery and insensitivity to others. We've got sins of commission, the things that we do that we shouldn't. We've got sins of omission, the things that we ought to do but don't. 
And yet through the power of Christ, we can be humble. We can be a growing Christian that actually wants to expose those areas of our life, not deny them or rationalize them away. And, and to experience that in a way that doesn't condemn, but actually transforms. A way that we can experience real forgiveness and freedom and become increasingly changed people. It's messy, but it can be so beautiful. So are there judgmental people? Yes. But judgmentalism is not what comes with Jesus. In fact, he denounced it in the strongest terms. So when you see it, you know you're not seeing authentic Christianity. Yet some folks have used it as a reason to reject the Christian faith. And that's just tragic. Which segues perfectly into this issue of hypocrisy. You know, as a pastor's kid growing up, I feel I had a front row seat to Christian hypocrisy, not from my folks, but from the various churches and church politics and divisions and attitudes that I was exposed to and I couldn't totally be protected from. You know, I came of age at a time when there were these public Christians who were saying Star Wars was evil and the Smurfs were tantamount to witchcraft. And those were the same people who were caught in adulterous affairs or were getting their own perp walk by the IRS. And my, my first youth pastor leaves the faith and his wife along with it. My, my dad had the unfortunate task often of being the go-to guy to go to churches and bring some measure of, of healing and structure and accountability, but often it meant going to churches where there had been a, a pastor failing um, in a public or a moral or unethical way. And I imagine this all had a, a detrimental effect on my attitude towards Christians. But I didn't abandon the Christian faith. And, and though it wouldn't be the last time I experience that kind of disillusionment. In fact, I would say in the last two or three years, there has been a deluge of Christian embarrassments, if you will, of fallen leaders who, who have given the church, who have given the gospel a black eye. I still haven't abandoned it because I've realized something very important. And please hear me on this. I pray you would know this, that that just like with legalism or judgmentalism, hypocrisy doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Jesus was the opposite of a hypocrite. Jesus was antithetical to judgmentalism. Jesus hated legalism. And so why would I reject Jesus because of what others are doing? It, makes, it just makes absolutely no sense. Jesus went on the warpath against judgmentalism, against legalism, against hypocrisy. In fact, he's the one who kind of started the war. Listen to what he says in the Gospel of Matthew. Hypocrites, he's talking to guys like me, kind of professional Christians, religious folks. You pretend to be holy with all your long public prayers in the streets while you are evicting widows from their homes. Hypocrites. 
You are like beautiful mausoleums full of dead men's bones and of foulness and corruption. You try to look like saintly men, but underneath those pious robes, our hearts besmirched with every sort of hypocrisy and sin. So what many people cite as a reason for rejecting Christianity and Christ has nothing to do with the authentic Christian faith, much, much less our Savior Jesus. But while we're talking about it, let's also be equally clear about what hypocrisy isn't, okay? Hypocrisy isn't when somebody fails your expectation of what perfection should be. It, it isn't catching someone who says they follow Jesus committing a sin. Uh, if that's what defines hypocrite, you better put me at the top of the list of hypocrites. Um, come spend a day with me, and I will absolutely disappoint you uh, if perfection is your standard. And while you're making your list, you maybe better leave a little room for you on it as well. <laughs> we consistently fall short of, of, of sounding like, looking like, living like Jesus. So Christian does not mean perfection. Not in this life, it doesn't. Uh, yet this idea kind of runs rampant. You hear this all the time. I don't want to say I'm a Christian, or I can't go to church as, as if I'm a Christian, or certainly I don't, I, I, I don't want to be baptized and go public as a Christian because, wait for it, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, here's the thinking behind those statements, that being a Christ follower means being perfect. And being a hypocrite means saying you're a Christ follower and not being perfect. And so since nobody wants to be a hypocrite, they think it's best not to associate themselves with Christians or the church or Christ. But man, that's as screwed up as hypocrisy is. The, the truth is that the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is just spiritual authenticity. I, I fail what seems like a thousand times a day, but the real question is whether I'm more like Jesus now than I was five years ago. Or, or whether when I fail... I'm learning more to admit it, to ask God's forgiveness for it. And did the failing, um, did it affect me seriously enough to, to grow in Christ-likeness? We saw Kelly Garby a few weeks ago offer a prayer that was maybe a model of Christian authenticity. The Christian faith is unique to holding the idea that the first step towards authentic spirituality is not having your act together, but knowing that you don't, okay? This means an authentic Christian life isn't marked by perfection. It's actually marked by transformation. C.S. Lewis once wrote about this in a way that I found helpful. Maybe you will too. He said, you may observe that a particular Christian woman you know, anybody named Mary here? 
Good. Okay, let's call her Mary. And uh, she has a difficult time um, keeping away from gossip. And you know a non-Christian woman. Anybody named Betty? Let's call her Betty. So you see Mary, the gossiping Christian, and Betty, the non-gossiping, non-Christian. And it's natural for you to think, Mary's a hypocrite. Or that maybe the whole Christian life doesn't really work. But that misses the point of transformation. Here's the real issue. What would Mary be like if she wasn't in a relationship with Christ? How much worse? And what could Betty be like if she was in a relationship with Christ? You think gossip is Mary's problem? You should have met Mary before she met Christ. We're all works in progress. We all have different areas of strengths and weakness. God meets every one of us where we're at, and he begins there. So let me see if this illustration resonates for you. John Asbury, if you're watching, you'll appreciate this. I, I used to hang around, you know, musicians, like good musicians, of which I am not. These were, you know, college-trained musicians, like... Um, Canada's version of, of Berkeley School of Music, Grant McEwen College in Edmonton. And those were my first roommates as a 19-year-old. I'd continue to have relationships with sort of high-level musicians. And one thing I could always count on with these friends as they kind of progress deeper into their training and into their musicianship is that if they didn't before, it wouldn't be too long before invariably they'd start listening to jazz and to the Canadian rock band Rush. Okay, now, I have a complicated relationship with both of these. I want to like them. I do. I've tried to like them. You know, good jazz music, as you know, is for kind of accomplished musicians. Rush is widely known as three of the most superlative rock musicians, bass, drums, guitar. They, they don't have a lot of radio hits so much as this cult-like following, trying to figure out their complex musicianship. So let's say um, I, I, I go to John Asbury, who is trying to sell me on the virtues of Rush. And I say, um, John, imagine there's a bunch of elementary school kids, and they decide that they're going to form a band and tackle side A of the classic album 2112. It's basically like one long 20 minute song with key changes and tempo changes. And, and they're going to perform it at their school assembly for people who've never heard of Rush. Um, th that will be their first and only introduction to Rush. If those people hear this performance by a, a grade six school band, would it be fair for them to assess the worth of Rush's music based on that performance? Obviously, those kids would kind of butcher it, right? They're just kids. Their performance would have nothing to do with how good that album is or much less how good the band Rush is. Now, play this out spiritually. There are a lot of Christians walking around trying to live for Jesus. 
but we're like elementary school kids in a garage band trying to perform prog rock, okay? Don't judge the composer based on these performances. Our failure at living the way Jesus lived has nothing to do with Jesus. Christians may disappoint you, but Jesus never will. I promise you that. There's so much more I'd like to say this morning. You know, this is kind of my holy discontent. If you've tracked with me over these last four years, the the church not acting like the church. I wish we had time to talk about a, a hugely important issue to this younger generation, how there has been a reputation, a lot of it rightly earned, of Christians who have been unloving, ungracious, even hateful towards members of the LGBTQ community. Christians need to own that, need to repent of it for the sin that it is. God cares deeply about every human being on this planet. He loves them. He wants to be in full relationship with them, full stop, which means that every single person is welcome at our church, they will be accepted, they will be loved, they will be cared for. The invitation to everyone coming through those doors or watching online is to figure out where you stand with Jesus. If you accept him and begin exploring what Jesus has to say about all kinds of things in your life, um, that's part of the adventure of making him the Lord of your life, of of submitting to him, letting him transform your life, letting him speak into his vision of what sexual boundaries look like, of what uh, your attitude towards money and family should be like, about what he calls the abundant life, letting Jesus speak into your life about his standards of holiness. And at the same time, we could do a whole message on not rejecting Christianity just because there are, in fact, some lines in the sand. Um, Not to reject it because you don't like the lines. But that's not the same as being hypocritical, judgmental, legalistic. Um, We should do a whole sermon sometime on when you actually should leave a church. Uh, A sermon maybe on how God promises one day to expose the pain caused to you. And, and how he will one day make all of that right. We could do a whole sermon on how, how we can't control what other people do to us, but we can always control our responses to the hurtful things they do. Spoiler alert, it, forgiveness is the only path to that kind of freedom. As I invite the band to come back this morning, you know, one of the biggest temptations that we'll have to overcome when dealing with the hurt and the rejection that comes from other Christians is the temptation to reach the wrong conclusions about God and about Jesus. Hurt has a way of of distorting our perspectives, especially when that hurt comes from supposedly godly people in our lives who, who seem to be inflicting the greatest pain on us. I might not have specific answers for your specific situation this morning, but I can promise you this. You are not alone. Um, God has not forgotten you. Um, 
Take a deep breath. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is just and he is good. Will you pray with me? For the Christian here this morning, God, would we be such good ambassadors for you that when the world sees us, they'd see what a transformed life can look like. Not a perfect life, but one that has been utterly changed by the power of Jesus. We are supposed to be salt and light in this world, and sometimes we're more like salt in the wounds of of those who are hurting and dying around us. So Lord, I pray that we would take the, the divine responsibility seriously to be a walking, talking billboard for the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we have sullied the gospel, sullied your good name. For the sake of the world, I pray that we would be light in a dark place. I ask this in Jesus' name.